Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Today, we welcome our guest, Dr. Perry Nicholson. Perry is a chiropractic physician focusing on performance enhancement, corrective exercise, and metabolic fitness nutrition. He is also an expert in myofascial, orthopedic, medical, and trigger point soft tissue therapy and the founder of Stop Chasing Pain. On this episode, we discuss the importance of the lymphatic system, self-care versus self-treatment, how the body's systems work together, and Perry's top four places he likes to start when treating his patients. So let's get going with this episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. So really happy to have Dr. Perry Nicholson here in Chatham, Virginia with us live on set. And actually, uh, probably a lot of your listeners and, and people that follow you may not realize that you're pretty much from this area, pretty much right down the street. And you came down, uh, Perry, where I first met you was probably going on 10 years ago where you came down and kind of talked to Gray and I, and you're talking about lasers and different things. And I think, you know, we were able to uh, kind of give you a little bit of idea about how we're looking at movement and certainly some things you were doing at the time were influencing us. But, you know, I'm going to turn it over to you. Kind of give us your kind of history and your, your kind of where you were at the time as a chiropractor and kind of what changed your way of thinking to where you are now um, as known as the, the lymph doc. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just, just kind of give us that journey for you. Well, thank you very much, my friends. It's great to be here. I can't believe I'm sitting in the official FMS move well, move often chair. <laughs> I've automatically elevated my game. So yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, I actually grew up 30 minutes or so from where we are now. So I'm originally from the South, a Southern boy in Martinsville, Virginia. So 10 years ago was the first time I'd been back here in 30 some odd years when we met for the first time. I introduced you to laser therapy at the time, and then both of you introduced me to the movement world. You which, did. I, yeah. I, I would, had been studying up on hot and cold laser and some of its contributions to soft tissue, and I really appreciated the education you were giving me because I learned way quicker by doing and <clears throat> interacting than I do just reading article after article. And I honestly think that that, I could appreciate what you were talking about with the laser simply because I had a few things in tissue that needed to change, a few things that I was going to look at in three days that I needed to be better. So I already had some baselines I was shooting for. Mm. So I wasn't putting all my eggs in the laser basket or the dry needling basket or the scraping or manipulation basket. I said, if I add this, I'll be able to know if it's valuable or not. And what you helped me understand is there, there is something to the laser and the dosage and the, and the treatment uh, technique that you do um, because a lot of stuff fits under that category, mm -hmm. but not all of that stuff has a measurable outcome. And that's where I think we connected because we were already running some movement baselines, uh, but I still want to know about the laser and how I could see that influence, influence movement. So. Well, we really both helped each other out because I've been using lasers for a long time up to that point, but I was always pointing it to the side of pain and inflammation, which is a good thing because you want to start there for sure, right? And I was having some great success, but then I came across your work and with the movement book and then this novel idea of non-painful dysfunction, which means that why don't you point it to places that actually physically don't hurt, but might have some dysfunction there. 
two of the biggest ones were decrease in mobility, right, or not enough stability in there, which you've talked about. And here's what I noticed. I started to aim it at both places. So let's say your right shoulder hurt. I'm, I would put it on your right shoulder more so because the client expected me to. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because right. they need to know that I have empathy and I validate where they're hurt. So they're like, why are you pointing it at my right knee? I'm, am I in the right place? So I'd point it there and they'd feel better. But then that it was a huge epiphany for me that maybe, just maybe, is coming from the opposite side hip that doesn't have mobility in there. Or the active straight leg raise you can't do on the left side, and that's the pivot to the right shoulder. So I started to aim it at the hip, and then people would say, Doc, I don't know if you're like a wizard or something, but this feels even better. And that was the boom that went off. So we actually found each other uh, to help each other that way. And it changed everything about how I assess, everything about how I treat, because you can have the best laser in the world, but if you're aiming it at the wrong spot or not all of the spots, it's not going to get you very far. Right. So the, the logic in aiming the laser at the point of pain is to create maybe some homeostasis, some blood flow, some pain mitigation, and some therapy on the inflammation that's already present. But since we know a lot of those hip trigger points can refer to the knee, a lot of those calf triggers can refer to the foot, that that's where when we started working at the at the level of the SFMA, let's just let's just look at all the movements and see how many of these movements are not normal and or dysfunctional, and how many of those provoke pain. Because we're pretty easy at getting that pain provocation. We're not always easy at that other stuff. And in physical therapy, I don't know how chiropractic referred to it as other than a thorough holistic exam but we call it regional interdependence. And that means that a seemingly unrelated body part not performing at its requisite level can create behaviors, mechanical burdens, and movement uh, compensations that actually load up or make it harder to get the thing that you're being seen for better quickly. Now, Here's the funny thing. When Lee and I look at risk factors for musculoskeletal problems and injuries, and we also look at regional interdependence, things that are going to make your back rehab slower than his, we're looking at mobility, stability, balance, awareness, symmetry, right? All the other burdens can't be removed momentarily. Your BMI, it's going to take a while, right? We'll go right at it. It's a problem. It's going to take a few days to get your homeostasis with your sleep, hydration, and stuff like that. But we have an immediate plasticity within, I think, mobility, balance, and motor control where the body will actually say, thank you for unburdening me. So when single leg stance gets better in a single treatment session, in a single training session, or when toe touch gets better in a single session, that is not the therapy. That is a demonstration of functional plasticity. This body is ready to change, maybe not to completely normalize. We got structure, we got other things going on, but it's ready to get better. And whatever you just did is on the right path. And whatever they've been doing isn't on the right path, or they'd have walked in more optimized than they were. And that's the feedback loop that I think people forget about when they follow your advice or ours. They drop the corrective. They drop the philosophy. Mm. Or they're trying to explain to somebody, well, it's your psoas that's causing your knee problem. I don't try to explain it to them. 
I'd deal with them both and said, hey, how's your knee feel now? Oh, it feels better. I hadn't touched your knee yet. And that's how I bring that into play. I don't ever try to talk them out of their knee pain. Their knee pain is their knee pain. I try to explain it upstream right here and then downstream what's going to happen if we stir this up too early. So, Perry, you, you, you mentioned using the laser and that's kind of how we started yep. communicating. Your epiphany was, okay, let me point this at something else. It's the laser is just the modality. That's not the, the kind of the key component, but you've also used a lot, especially in chiropractic, using a lot of other modalities. And I think it went, you're doing a lot of taping using rock tape and I think you talked <clears> to them for a while and <throat> now you kind of grab it. So, you know, how was that transition and, and what kind of, was that another, another thing that says, wow, this is, this taping is doing, helping me achieve what I want to achieve. No different than maybe differently, but yeah. kind of different than the laser. Well, I use so many different tools, right? I mean, they're endless and <clears throat> every tool works for someone. It just depends on, do they need it at that moment in that particular time? Because that tool could have been useful for them yesterday, but maybe it's not going to be useful for them today because their nervous system's at a completely different place. Your stress level will determine often how my treatment's going to go from yesterday into today. But I realize that one, your tool is only as good as a person who's holding the damn thing. Because if you're doing it at the wrong spot or your dose is too much, not you have the Goldilocks syndrome, not enough, too much, just right. And you have to gauge that based on the person that you're working with. And that takes a lot of in moment attention and awareness to not not the tissue that you're working on, but the human being that's carrying the tissue around that's coming in to ask you for help because that's ultimately what you need to, to work with. Um, yeah, and I stopped really focusing so much on the tools, but making sure that we talked about this important tactics and strategies. Like there's endless ways that you can take care of something, but are, are you going after the right concept, the right strategy? Am I going down the right pathway? Otherwise, you're just going to get lost in the quicksand. And I found that happening to me. I had so many toys in through here and I was using them all and I was overloading a person. First of all, too many treatments. Um, but I realized that I had to step back and really look at and assess, am I going after the right? Cause I got so frustrated. I'm treating all these people the typical way at the time. I don't do it anymore. It would be three times a week for four weeks. Then I would reassess after four weeks. I'm like, why don't you reassess after each visit? First of all, right. Um, and, but I would say, why are they getting better, but they're not staying better? What's the deal? I really wasn't looking at movement up to that standpoint. All of my stuff was done on a table. So I was assessing unloaded. I didn't assess loaded. And then I would treat you on the table. And then I realized what is the one thing that everybody has in common that I'm missing? I'm like, oh yeah, they got to get up and move. Like, they got to walk to their car. And very often that's the person who says, felt great for like 30 minutes. And then everything came back. I said, okay, I got to trash everything. And that was the first step. That was the, the string that I pulled that led me down all this. And that's what stop chasing pain means. It's a treat where it hurts, but then stop chasing it and look everywhere else, which not a lot of people do because there's a lot to look at. But that's where you got to step back and really We're use. not used to athletic trainers. Right chiropractors and physical therapists doing anything but sports medicine and musculoskeletal treatment. We're used to our GP looking upstream and asking those questions about lifestyle. But you've heard, you, both of you have heard the statement, you can't out-exercise a bad diet. Mm. Okay? You also, in, in musculoskeletal rehab, you can't out-treat a bad lifestyle. They've got 23 hours 
to trash what you did. And if you're not going to see them but three times a week, they got 48 hours to trash what you did mm. in most cases. And so you were one of the first chiropractors, and, I, and I've gotten to work with some really good chiropractors, <laughs> but we go back 10 years ago, you're hanging out at my house after we've been talking laser and SFMA all day, and we start to get on these things like adrenal fatigue and gut health and things like that. And I'm like, no, you get it. If your gut's not right, it's hard for your musculoskeletal system or your immune system to be optimized because all of the rest and regen and repair is dependent on getting those nutritional building blocks into the bloodstream. And so if you're only digesting half of what you eat, it's pretty hard to recover from anything that you do. And, and, and you talked in that very upstream way. So now being able to look at those dysfunctional, non-painful patterns, what we've seen is that if you do the right treatment and the right recommendation for self-care, the non-painful dysfunctional patterns, like a really poor balance pattern or mobility pattern, will actually change quicker then they will come back in and say, my pain is low. Mm -hmm. Now, people who are extremely self-aware and, and they know what they're looking for, they'll be a little bit more self-aware. But you got to realize living with pain actually makes you more um, unaware of all the things that could be adding to it because you get so focused on that pain behavior. You start planning your day around your low back pain. Yeah. You plan your golf shots around your low back pain and stuff like that. So sometimes... Just slowing up and looking at all those things, movement will actually give you a thumbs up before they will subjectively say, I'm feeling better. The minute I gave myself permission to follow those objective indicators, I'm not being callous and I'm not disregarding the subjective complaint. What I'm doing is saying, if these dominoes don't fall first, how could that one ever be better? And if it did come back better after I didn't do any of this, it's more of a cover-up, symptom management, or placebo effect than it actually is an upstream grabbing the tiger by the tail. All right, so let me, let me just unpack yeah. this a little bit. So basically, one thing that I think we all are guilty of, and, and Perry, you mentioned this, all the tools that are available. You know, you, you, you know, especially if you go to a conference or you go listen to a podcast or whatever, go on the internet, you're going to see all these tools that you can use, whether it's uh, something like a foam roll or a Theragun or a laser, whatever it is, you get all these tools available. And then, Gray, you talk, start talking about, well, you got to check gut health. You got to do all these other things. That's where it becomes, as a professional, overwhelming. Mm. How do you sift through? And I'm going to ask this directly. Gray, how, do you, how do you sift through all of that to come through, okay, this is what this person needs? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I read a great quote once that I always read every day is that uh, it was something I took from Neil deGrasse Tyson. I remember he said on a quote once that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. <laughs> and I said, that's perfect because the human body is the same way. Like it could care less whether you understand why it's doing what it's doing. It's going to pick a strategy. But here's what I learned. It always picks a strategy with one goal in mind. To save your life and protect you at all costs. Because things can be way worse than they are right now. Survive. Trust me. <laughs> You're built and to I'm going to do it. And I don't care if you, if you, you may not agree with my choice or understand it, but it's what I'm working with. Right. And, and that's based on your life story, your history. That's why everybody, every person is different. 
right? But here's what you mentioned before. Here's the big epiphany that I had. You had painful, you had painful dysfunction, non-painful dysfunction. And I was looking at the musculoskeletal system, right? So that was a big thing for me to say shoulder to hip. And then you're like, what? I can extend it to the ankle and the knee and the wrist too? This is awesome. But then I realized that, holy cow, there's a lot of other systems I'm not looking at. <laughs> and the same rule applies. I don't have any pain in my gut. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's not a mess, though. And people say, how do you know you have a gut problem? I'm like, that's easy. You're breathing on this planet. I know you got a gut problem. Yeah. I just need to know how bad it is. If it's symptomatic, it's to a, a bad point, right? And then that's going to impact all the other systems of the body because they all work together. So I was going down a road, but I was too specialized on my road. And I did that with neurology too. As so I was doing neuro neurological things, I was doing musculoskeletal things, but the universe had a way of teaching me something to help me find more answers. It made me really, really sick. Like five years ago, I got really sick and inflamed, and it didn't even give me a name for what it was because it was like a whole body inflammation shutdown thing, all right? Some type of autoimmune disease. It damn near killed me, and the medical approach to helping me damn near killed me even faster, not on purpose, but it's the only paradigm lens that they have, which was surgery and medications. I'm like, sure. okay, well, that ain't working. And I had, basically I had to rescue myself, and that's when I found the other, wait, I got an immune system? What? in the cardiovascular system, and then blood flow was a big thing. So I was really looking at blood flow, but just in relationship to the musculoskeletal system. And that's when I came across, you said, lymph doc with the lymphatic system, because that was a huge find for me in relationship to understanding the infl inflammation response, inflammatory response, and blood flow and recovery. So when I started to take, had that initial thread that I pulled from you guys, then what I did is I put it into all the other ones, and then they all worked together. And through the years, I kind of developed my own hierarchy of how I go about looking at the body and where I would go first, because they're all working together. You can't just treat one system. So when people say, hey, doc, when you, when you do something on my shoulder, which system are you working? And my answer is always the same. Yes. Well, I think that might be the first step for a lot of people when they get intimidated listening, listening to how you're approaching and how Grace talking about it is, man, I don't know how to deal with all that stuff. Just be comfortable knowing the first step is you Becoming aware. Right, become right. aware that you, whatever you do, it's going to impact the system, right. not the muscular system, but the entire human body and vice versa. Yeah. The entire human body is getting impacted by everything. So whether it's stress and that's, you know, whatever stress you're under is going to impact everything. So it's a matter of just being comfortable knowing that, um, but not working in the silos. And I think that's a big thing that in, in our profession we do where, okay, I'm just going to focus on sleep. I'm just going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on nutrition. Mm. And we forget that it's all connected. Right. Like with sleep. I mean, you know, somebody said that how you sleep determines on how you wake up, which means what are you doing during the day? It's probably going to influence a lot what you're doing when you're laying there looking at the ceiling. Yeah. Hence doing that. Maybe are you moving during the day? What type of movement are you doing today? It's going to influence your sleep. Well, anytime I've got a live crowd where I can see everybody's face, whether they answer my question or not, I know if they're trying. And I, I walk out on stage and I say, are you overstressed or under-recovered? You can only pick one to define your current state of being. Most people want to say both. Mm. The answer can never be both. Because if you're both overstressed and under-recovered, 
then we got to fix your recovery first. No matter what we do with your stress and what we do with your recovery, until you ping me what it takes to get you to homeostasis, which might not be much, sleep, hydrate, and stop running. Mm. <laughs> you know, people don't want to hear that. But as soon as I see you balance out, right, you're, you're a jar of water with mud in it. You keep shaking it up. I can't see through that. But if we'll just set it down and let this whole situation recover, the problem settles out. I can see clearly through that. So no matter whether you're overstressed or under-recovered, if we've got to make this binary, I got to get you recovered. So if I use the laser, if I use some type of lymphatic technique, if I recommend a little bit better self-care and maybe a wearable, believe it or not, I can actually change some of the things I would have been trying to fix with stressing, because I'm telling you what, when I scrape you, when I dry needle you, when I manipulate you and stretch you out and do manual therapy on you, that's a stressor, not a recovery. Mm. I'm pinging the system so it bounces back, like I turn your phone off so it resets. But every one of those is a stressor. And if I take that great bag of uh, tools and start doing all these stress points, just like you and I used to do, half the people I'm seeing aren't even recovered from the little that they've been doing, and I'm adding it, there's no way you can balance back out in a reasonable amount of time to actually feel the change we've done. So if we talk about this toolbox of techniques, in the bottom of my toolbox are my dry needles, my manipulation, a lot of the fancy taping techniques I know and some of the mm -hmm. strategies I got. You know that top thing you take out of the toolbox first, those really accessible tools? I call that self-care. And if you're not taking this advice, these big treatment hammers won't work. They, they, or they won't work for long or they won't hit save on the document. So I think that most of us who would say we're overstressed are overstressed in a non-physical way. Mm. And the best way to manage that sometimes is to rest well and then have physical stress to balance it out. But how do you know? You asked that question to me. I don't know whether I'm overstressed or under-recovered. If, how do you know that? If your heart rate variability. How do I know? Okay, get, how do I check that? Well, you get a wearable, but I can get you one step closer. Your morning resting heart rate before your feet hit the floor, you got to baseline that. And mm. that's basically whenever that's not at its low number, the, <clears throat> the number that you see when things are going right, if you're not at that low number, you're not finished recovering from whatever happened to you. And that could be a bad night's sleep. So the minute I check sleep and nutrition as a stressor in your life, not as a recovery, because if you're on an inflammatory diet and you're under five hours of good sleep, now two things that are supposed to be recovery are actually stressors that's going to cannibalize your behavior because you're always going to be fatigued and you're going to be eating out of mm, probably a sugar instinct, a blood sugar instinct, not a good ketogenic, balanced way. So the things that we assume are recovery, like the way you breathe, the way you sleep, the way you hydrate, the way you eat, what if these are stressors? You ain't got enough treatment in your toolbox to fix that situation if you don't at least do it first. So I don't need you on a food journal. I don't need to know a lot about your sleep. If your BMI is off and you've been trying to do the right things, if your elimination is like you're talking about constipation, diarrhea, I know all that stuff, bro. If you're talking about fatigue, there's a good chance you're dehydrated and you're going to flunk a breathing screen, right? So it's really easy. As Lee said, 
to get in a silo and try to optimize your sleep when you're not breathing right, you got some seasonal allergies, and you're going to bed dehydrated. Or maybe the exercise I prescribe isn't a stressor at all. It's to dump the accumulated tension of the day. Because if you're in your cubicle, even if you got a standing desk and switch positions, you're basically manifesting tension in your body that's going to make you a less efficient walker, jogger, or elliptical machine person than if you dump that tension prior to sleep or even prior to exercise. How many times do you find a mobility problem that doesn't respond to stretching, but it responds to meditation, manipulation, relaxation? Yeah, these aren't mobility problems. Mm -hmm. These are stability problems that decided it's easier to make you stiff than to trust you to move beyond this point. Yeah, I I had a great quote. I forgot who said it once. It said, sometimes you get better from what you stop doing as opposed to what you start doing. Exactly. And that was a big one for me because uh, you mentioned before is that therapeutic interventions are also stressors. So you have people that are coming in to see you. If they're coming in to see me for help, I already know you're stressed. That's why you're coming to see me for help. Because right. it's manifesting as pain for you in some way, shape, or form, right? And then since the zombie apocalypse that we had recently, everybody's under stress, right? And all these things are beginning to manifest themselves. And I realized that I'm contributing to that with an overload of the therapies that I'm doing. And it really was an epiphany, too, to back off on the dose that I was doing and realizing that I don't have to put you in pain to try to take away your pain. So I'm putting you into more stress because you hate me for hurting you more when you're on my table, even though you say, ah, it hurts so good. It feels so good. But I realize that you're not getting better because your nervous system put up a block and said, I can't, I can't do anything with this. You're, you're overloading me. Right? right. And then that survival, that survival response kicked into play. And when it, it kicks into survival mode, it goes back to the patterns that's been keeping it alive all this time. And I don't even call them dysfunctional patterns in my world because they're highly functional. But how do I know? Because you're not they're dead. They're doing their job, right? They're, those things, those <laughs> right. dysfunctions are actually doing their job. Right. They're just having to do their job because something else is not doing theirs. Right. So they are breaking down over time, whatever system it is. I mean, we focus on the musculoskeletal system, but it's whatever system it is. Right. It's having to take over to try to maintain homeostasis, but it's not. And I think that's part of... Again, that's part of the difficulty we have. Where do we, how do we navigate all this? Well, it's like, it's like this. Many of the things that happen to us, like if you roll your ankle, you're going to limp. And that's a temporary functional response to get the weight and the dorsiflexion off that leg. You're going to have a shorter stride on your good side, and you're basically going to unload that leg temporarily. And if you don't have crutches or a brace, a limp is a pretty functional solution. Mm-hmm. It's just not a long-term solution because now you're going to throw out your back. So, so the body is subconsciously on the ready and has four different options how to get from point A to point B. One of those is sustainable. Three of those are temporary, probably really good solutions, but not long-term sustainable. And that's how we get away from that. If you got a reason to limp, I'm not going to try to treat or talk you out of it. I'm going to try to basically honor the weight-bearing status that your body's already set. And it can get caught in that neuroplastic loop. I mean, because it was effective for it at one point. It was. But it may just not know that there's another effective strategy because you don't know what you don't know. The awareness part, right? I heard somebody phrase it uh, once. It was a neuroscientist said, it's not about good and bad in relationship to the decisions that your brain makes. It's about utility. 
It never does anything that it doesn't, that's not useful. And you're like, but it hurts and it doesn't make sense. What back to my quote, I don't care if it makes sense or not. It's useful for it at some point in its life in your life. And it may be going with that because it worked in the past. So that's why I like the stuff about the movement and awareness, because now you're bringing it to the conscious mind of like, oh, wow, you know, I I didn't, I didn't know that I was limping because I don't even know they're doing it. Well, give me an example. Gray talked about one with movement as the ankle. Give me one that you've kind of, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Mm -hmm. Give me one for the lymphatic system. In relationship to what? To how, to how the body will just manipulate itself to be more efficient and not and be more utilitarian. Yeah. Basically, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sacrifice something over here because this area over here is not working right. Right. Well, first, so the lymphatic system one's great. So I tell people, the first step in taking care of your lymphatic system is knowing that you got one. <laughs> and, and, then you, and then you need to even look at it because they're like, lymph what? I don't have cancer. What are you talking about? Because that's the only time they hear about it. Or when they have a body part that's 20 times bigger than the other one. But even in that world, they isolate. If I got a lymph problem in the left leg, they go to the left leg. I'm like, uh, no. You got to treat them all because there's probably going to be another place somewhere else that's got a block or a compensation that you're not right, looking I'm at. I'm going to make this very elementary. What is the lymphatic system and what's its, what, what is its purpose? Okay, sure. Well, the lymphatic system is one of your body systems, and it's part of two systems. Your immune system, so its pro- big job is to kill things off in your body that you don't want to stay in there for a long period of time. Bacteria, viruses, cancer cells, parasites, toxin cells, old dead cells of your own or metabolic waste. So when your cells die, those things got to get out. (laughs) And if they don't get out, they're going to stay inside of you and they're going to cause inflammation and swelling and pain. It's just like anything else. So basically it's because they're not contributing and still taking a free ride on the bus, right? Yeah. It's a sewage system of your body. When you go and you use the bathroom and you flush the toilet, you don't want that in your house, right? Because I want to live in your house. Get it out. Well, your cells don't want to live in your house either when they can't get rid of their cellular poop, which is waste. Right? And here's the, anything you stick in your mouth, you're going to eventually break down. This is going to come, become metabolic waste that has to get out. But it's also part of your um, cardiovascular system, your circulatory system, because it dumps right into the veins of the body. So if you have blood flow issues, you have lymph issues in my world. No ifs, ands, or buts. They always go together. Always, always, always. So anybody with a cardiovascular problem probably has a burden on the lymph system. Yes. Well, I think a big one right now is type 2 diabetes. People who are type 2 diabetic have circulation problems, have lymph problems. They can have whole, run the gamut, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, you, you got it all. And most of your lymphatics are going to sit in your gut. The substantial. And the other big place is from the neck up. So you've got lymph nodes, which are basically many toilets that flush out the toxins. You've got, depending on the research that you read, 400 to 700. <laughs> it's a big it depends on your body size too. One third of that number is from the neck up. What that tells me is this, based on our conversation this morning, everybody's got a neck problem. No matter what you walk in with in some way, shape or form. I don't care. Doc, my neck doesn't hurt. It's my pinky toe. Okay, well, I'm going to look at your pinky toe. Then I'm going to look at your neck. And I'm not kidding you. Because if you got pain, you're going to have inflammation. Yep. And then inflammation is going to impact your lymphatic system. Yeah, because the lymphatic system is designed to get rid of inflammation. Right. So no matter where your pain is, if you walk in the door, you're coming to see a clinician, you already have pain, which means you already in your brain, in your world, you're already thinking, all right, the lymphatic, the lymphatic system is impacted. 
Yeah, or if it's working well, I need to make sure it's working right, all the way through. Because let's think about it. If you injure something, what are you going to do? You're going to damage something, right? So what do you automatically got? <laughs> Damaged Damage cells. Tissues, yep. right? And those things got to get out, right? And then I'm going to have swelling and inflammation because I need to have swelling and inflammation. But you don't want that stuff to stick around. Then it becomes chronic inflammation. And then you get the diseases that we have right now. That stuff's got to get out. Well, what system gets rid of it? And you better be saying lymphatic system. And then I say, okay, well, if you injure that and I'm doing all the therapies to that ankle, what's one of the reasons I do all the therapies to that ankle? To reduce swelling and inflammation. So I got to make sure it can get out if I'm going to treat it. Then what am I trying to get in there? Blood flow and nutrients and oxygen. I'm like, where the hell you think that comes from? The same place. So I got to get to it and away from it. And the lymphatic system influences both. And that's how, that's how you need to look at the systems going together. I need you to know, tell me why you're treating that. And then you, when you tell me why, I'm going to say, now you have to reverse engineer what the body needs in order to make that system successful that you just told me about. And what I find is this. People got blocks all in the system that they don't know they got. Uh, so I do a lymph movement screen, basically, is what I call it. I'm okay. checking areas of the body that you don't know are vulnerable on you that can be a contributor to your ankle. So, for instance, I'm going to press in your gut, and I'm going to see if you want to punch me in the face. If it hurts in your gut, I know you got a gut problem. I know you got a lymph problem. And I know that your body is going to have to move around the inflammation in that gut that you didn't consciously know that you had. It's always been there, but consciously you didn't know about it. But non-conscious, subconsciously, your brain's always happened to know about it. So it's got to move around it all the time. Right. So what I say is that you're never going to get where you need to be on that ankle until you take care of these other places first. That's kind of like the self-care thing. Yeah, because you can get the ankle better just because you're a good clinician. The ankle's getting better, but if you're not, a direct, if you're not dealing with that, three months later, you still have a little bit of inflammation, the ankle's not working quite right, and now you got a back problem. Yeah, because listen, all that inflammation, all those nociceptive threat signals coming into your nervous system can overload the system. And it's going to manifest it somewhere else. It's going to say, okay, where's the next weakest link? I don't I like the word weak link because language is important. I like vulnerability. Where's your vulnerable spot? Not your weak link. Because um, it's going to go there. Why? Because it's less work. Dude, it's easier. Let's take out that spot. It's way easier to take right. them down that way, right? That's how nature works. The lion doesn't go after the strongest one. It, can, it goes after the one that's hobbling along. Easy to take out. Plus, it takes less energy to accomplish that. So it's less work for the brain and the nervous system to go after the weak link. But it's always just fi trying to find its compensation. So when I came across that of the human body is always trying to protect you. It's always trying to heal you as best it can. It does the best it can with what it's got in the moment it's in, always. Even though pain, chronic pain, feels like punishment. I know because I've been there, right? If you just reframe that, that, listen, I know it's horrific, but I ask, why are you doing this to me, body, and why are you choosing this route? What am I, what am I missing? What am I not looking at? And that's natural. That's what it's supposed to do. The it's body. supposed to. We don't have a system that does that. But though. the coolest thing, too, is it adapts. It can change. And you can make some significant changes. Right. Yeah. And it's this thing we are talking about before. It's you, you can't change something until you become aware of it, right? But here's stuff changes all the time. You're just not aware of it, right? But when you are aware of it, now you can play the active role in it. Because I tell people that once they discover the lymphatics and then you start to take care of it, 
that's when it comes on the radar and they go, wow, I mean, it made such a big difference for me. Or you did with uh, hydration, the awareness of hydration, of, of the importance of breathing for that. Because you don't know what you don't know. As a healthcare professional, most of your patients likely walk through your door already experiencing pain. The SFMA is your initial assessment and provides a differential diagnosis that leads to more efficient treatment. And now it is easier than ever to get certified by signing up for one of our SFMA live virtual courses. We offer SFMA level one and two virtual courses online, guided by a live instructor who will take you through the entire process. You'll be able to ask our team questions in real time and watch instructors work through live models throughout the day to be sure you leave with a clear understanding and the ability to start implementing the SFMA into your own practice. And for a limited time, we'd like to offer our podcast listeners a special rate for this SFMA virtual training experience. Follow the link in the show notes and use promo code VERT22 at checkout for $50 off your virtual SFMA Level 1 or Level 2 certification courses. That's V-I-R-T-2-2. And if you bundle them at checkout, you'll save an additional $220 automatically. We look forward to you joining us. Now back to the show. In my world, I have a kind of a hierarchical system that I go by. So um, I always start where it hurts, the side of pain. But I've designed my practice a certain way where I'm not the first person you see, I'm the last. So I already know by the time you walk into my door, they've done everything three waves from Sunday to that side of pain. And they've done all the tests to make sure that your back doesn't hurt because you don't have bone cancer. So I know all that stuff is ruled out. And they're like, my blood work is fine. This is good. I can't, nothing's going on. So then I can put that to the side. And then now I look everywhere else. But I actually started going back and revisiting basics that other people should have checked. And I realized they don't check them. Right. And said, nobody's ever asked me about my poop, like am I pooping? Or they didn't ask me about my sleep habits or the water that I'm drinking. And Hey, do you walk? Right. And tell me about that a little bit. Or what kind of shoes are you wearing? Do you go barefoot or anything like that? What's your life like at work? What's your life like at home? When people are in my office, every time I have a conversation, within about 20 minutes to 30 minutes, most of them are crying. Because I haven't laid a hand on them yet. I'm just talking to them. I'm listening to them. And I ask these questions, and the body's been dying to tell them, been dying to let it out, and then it, and then it goes. Well, I wish more musculoskeletal therapists knew of the work of, like, Dr. Sarno and stuff like that. And, TMS. You know, yeah, because you, you will manifest pain in your body, whether it's emotional, psychosocial, psychological, or partially physical. So there is usually a huge psychological component to pain. Number one, it could be part of the catalyst. Secondly, it could be a response to chronic pain by how it influences your behavior. Either way, I think most of us who've been in musculoskeletal care for a while, whether we unpack it at the front end like you're wise enough to do, or stuff just comes up Mm -hmm. on visit three, I mean, we'll see somebody have a tissue release or a manipulation, and there's a huge catharsis. I've seen it with dry needling. I've seen it with manipulation. I've seen it with positional stretching. I've seen it in a lot of different things. And there's just this emotional catharsis, and you think you hurt somebody, Mm. and you didn't. You just held your hand on the problem long enough, and there was a little bit of a physical release, but within that physical release, there's something there, and, and, and it comes out. And it's not our job to make it all emotional. 
or all musculoskeletal. And I think if you if you read Dr. Sarno's book and you're not a clinician, you'll think that all low back pain is psychological. Mm. And if you read too many mechanical back papers, you'll think that all low back pain is structural. It ain't neither one. A lot of it is the way that you are doing things right now. Most people, like you said, they wake up with pain and they say, what's wrong with me? They never say, what am I doing wrong? Sarno's work changed my life when I read that because I initially had that um, viewpoint as well when I first read it. I I wasn't going down the emotional road on anything until I hit it myself. You discover a lot of things when you hit rock bottom. Right. I think it was Gabor Mate said, illness comes along to teach you something. You, you, you learn to dispense better advice when you got to follow your own. Yeah. And And he said that TMS, the tension myoneural or tension myositis syndrome. And basically it's tissue tightens up. Right. For many different reasons. A lot of it's psychological, right? I mean, how you think in a moment, you just, I mean, how many up. people with tight traps actually Cut. have true trigger points or is that just their core and where they store right. their, right? It's just tight. It's <laughs> tension, right? Where you get it from. Yeah. A lot of places, but tight tissue doesn't accept blood flow. Well, and I'm like, okay, well, what else goes with blood flow, blood flow in, blood flow out. I'm like, what else goes with blood flow? What? You mean lymph goes with blood flow too, right? So you're, tensing up and you're starving the body of what it needs to get the nutrients in. So you got a circulatory roadblock. You got a lymphatic roadblock. Yeah. Right. So you got congestion. Yep. And you got ischemia. Yeah. Then you get hypoxia and then you get the inflammatory response. Right. And so the idea is to decrease that tension. Well, that's why you have to deal with the emotional side of things. Cause there's always an emotional part to an injury because you're not a rock. It's somewhere in there, right? Especially when you got an autoimmune disease or it's chronic in my world, right? So uh, I don't treat so many acute injuries as the chronic ones that come back, right? Um, So in my world, I'm trying to decrease your stress response. And I can do that through, uh, well, if you're dehydrated, that's going to stress you out a little bit, your nervous system. And then if your breathing's off, that's going to take that out a little bit, right? But that's why I do a lot of vagus nerve work now, which is the nerve of the day that everybody's going after, to to decrease the stress, take down the tension myoneural syndrome, and then all those other things that are downstream automatically start to get a little bit better, even the one where you've got the decrease in your ankle. So my top four that I go after for people are the vagus nerve to decrease the stress response from sympathetic, fight, flight, freeze, freak out to parasympathetic, mm-hmm. right? And then the other, second one is lymphatics, right? And I automatically improve lymphatics when I work the vagus nerve because I decrease tension in the body, so I increase fluid flow. Number three is the gut. Why? Because that's where most of your lymph lives, it's where most of your blood flow lives, it's where most of your immune system lives. And holy cow, my core, whatever you want to consider that is, lives there too. And then number four is vascular. But if I do step one, two, and three, I already help number four right from the get-go. And then pain for me at the bottom is number nine. I have more on the list, but that's automatically going to improve number nine because it's a downstream issue. Yep. for me yep. so i said why don't i do both instead of going at the side of pain and fighting my way to the top why don't i go to the top and the bottom and i meet them in the middle right because that pain is not going to let go if you're stuck in survival mode because pain is also a survival tactic no right? and, and i'm glad you said that because a lot of times when i'm talking about going upstream getting your sleep right and stuff like that you know i'm simultaneously treating the thing 
and right. I'm simultaneously treating the burden. All right. But I had to prove to myself in a few situations that if they just between now and the next visit are aware and stop a few behaviors, and I haven't really made a robust therapeutic intervention yet, I'm still going to have a measurable that got better. So very rarely do I get to say, be aware of this and stop doing that. And when I see you next time, I'll remeasure everything and tell you how much a difference it made. I rarely get to do that. All I'm saying is that works. So just stopping bad behavior in isolation usually has a measurable benefit. Not many people are going to want us to do that. They want a therapeutic intervention as well. But if you ever do have to prove that ceasing a bad behavior has a therapeutic response, you can do it in isolation. I rarely do. But the whole point is, as long as I have agreement on that front end of behavior, treatment, treatment is going to be boosted. Let me ask you a quick question. Signs of all the things you're talking about, because one of the big things we get is people think health is the absence of disease. It's not. Okay? Wellness is literally your future health, your accumulated risk factor. People with elimination problems, whether it's IBS, chronic loose stool diarrhea, constipation, swollen feet, right? Or a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness from a very little bit of activity. Every one of these is setting off red flags for you, isn't it? Yep. Because you just described it, but I don't have to wait till I have lymphedema, (laughs) which is the disease to say, I've already got an unwell lymphatic circulatory and digestive system because there's no way you can improve the musculoskeletal system if those three things are disadvantaged. So inappropriate swelling, inappropriate muscle soreness, um, and what's the minimum that even a healthy person would have to be upright and moving not to start getting a lymphatic bottleneck? I mean, most humans up until a couple hundred years ago were logging six miles a day. Yeah. Just because it was Tuesday, not because it was walking day in the village, right? Everybody's on their feet. You're not logging six miles a day if you're not on your feet nearly two-thirds of the day. People in a cubicle with a standing desk are supposed to have swollen feet at the end of the day, even if things are mostly normal because they're not getting the minimum effective dose of gravity, single-leg stance, and multi-pattern symmetrical execution. Here's the thing about limp. People always say, well, well, what moves limp? I'm like, really good question. Two things move it primarily. Movement. And I go, what type? And I go, yes. Like, move more of yourself more often, more ways, more environments. Just do something different than what you're doing now. Because if you do the same movement patterns all the time, you groove fluid flow based on those patterns. So you need to switch it up a little bit. That's why I like a lot of the stuff that you do. I like ground-based movements because nobody goes to the ground on purpose. They usually fall there. You had a really rough night out and you wake up there, right? And then you do your crawling pattern to the toilet and you get your core workout from heaving. Um, That's so people tell me. Uh, Props to Katie Bowman. We've heard her on the show and she's all about get out and roll around on the ground and just mash your T-spine. Mash your It's not about seeing how long you can plank. Make sure more than your hands and feet come in contact with the ground. And sometimes just rolling around on the ground. And I was doing this thing with Erwan LaCour where we were doing just forward rolls on grass. Literally, when you're tucking your head to one side and throwing one arm under you like you're doing a tactical forward roll where you're going to come up into half kneeling, it is 
unbelievable how much it felt natural on one side. I didn't even want to do it on the other side. Yeah. It's like going off the 10-foot high dive. You just don't want to do it. Yeah. And I'm like, how much of this is me just being unfamiliar? And how much of this is me like trying to block that? I've had a previous injury or something. And I've talked a lot of people through that. And they're all about, you know, foam rolling the T-spine. I need T-spine this. Man, if you're doing forward and backward rolls a little bit, playing around the ground, you just did your spinal mobility and you hit some pressure points that would have never otherwise gotten pressure on them. Those inverted positions are as healthy for your limp position as upright. And don't even get me started on your vestibular system at the same time, right? Those tuck and rolls. And that's why I like some of the work that Paul Check used to do, get you on the ground, do some of those inchworms, kind of moving back yep. and getting you getting more skin in the game, man. I mean, that's why you're on the ground as an infant, because that's that input, the sensory input into the brain. And then the brain comes to the surface of the skin, does that tactical right in there. So just doing something different and novel lights up your brain and people don't realize how difficult it is to move your own body weight on the ground it ain't easy and the funny thing is it doesn't have to be a skill it doesn't have to be just play you can go back and reclaim something that was once lost and and that that's not a skill that's a fundamental movement block and and trying to have a full life without that cornerstone or that block I've mixed that into training. I'll have people go, okay, I want you to go up and carry something really heavy or lift something really heavy, and then don't sit and do your time. I mean, I want you to go down and do, do a couple of rolling patterns. Just do a rock and roll back and forth, and then get up, and then go lift this. Hit. The second one was even better. I was even stronger on the second one. Why is that? Well, it's the stuff we were talking about right there, right? A lot of neural stuff going on in there. So the movement, but people today don't move. Right? We sit a lot and we slouch a lot and we get tension and tightness in the body. And most of your lymph node clusters, those many toilets, are located around the primary joints of your body that are supposed to move the most. Your upper neck, your shoulder, your, your abdomen, your groin, and your knee. Well, when you sit, you clamp down on every single one of them. Right? And then the other one is breathing particularly through the diaphragm, because the diaphragm, which you guys talk a lot about, increases intra-abdominal pressure. That's pressure in the abdomen, which moves your organs a lot. And holy cow, it's moving the cylinder where most of your lymphatics are, but pressure moves fluid. Yep. So everything in your body is supposed to be going. So I have people, like we said before about the lymphatics, you'll come in to see me and you've got swelling in the left leg. I can't just do some lymph work on your left leg. Because I need to see, okay, well, first of all, where is the left leg got a drain to? It's on a drain to the neck, the bottom of the neck at the collarbone, into the veins of the body, into the subclavian vein, and it drains to the left side of the neck. And then I'm like, okay, well, what if you got a block in your groin or your abdomen or behind your sternum or in your neck? And I start pushing fluid up from your leg. Where do you think it's going to go? Well, it's going to go right back down to your legs where it's going to go because it can't get past it. Right? So it's just understanding where these blocks are or where these tension points are. And here's what I learned from studying um, uh, a couple things, complex systems theory and um, the idea of linear versus nonlinear, where the human body is nonlinear, which means that it, it can take a small input and you get a huge output on the back end. The input doesn't always equal the same output. So linear means if I do A, I get A over here. Nonlinear means I do A and I get Z. It's huge, 
huge thing. It's think like about asymmetrical it. warfare when seven Navy SEALs can take out. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. right? It's, it's, it's really, it's a really resourceful system. And, and, and I think you, 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 the body wants to heal. Exactly. The body wants to heal it because it's fighting for life in whichever way it can express itself. And I also see that sometimes the best definition of a better behavior or a better corrective or a better treatment is it's transferable to many other things, meaning I can see your improvement in other areas than I just work. And that's what, when I use the word weakest link, I'm not saying you got one. I'm saying in a chain, the minute we find that, we just change the entire status of the chain. And your body if we find the choke point, the restriction, the whatever the congestion is, the, the bottleneck, we found a way because there are 16, 20 things dependent on that one bottleneck right. that all go, oh, glad that's over with, you know. Well, it's back to what we were saying before. A, 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 a nonlinear system, which is the human body, is uh, drinking that glass of water and getting yourself dehydrated changes 800 different things on the back end. And you're like, how could something so simple make such a big difference? Like, well, because it's nonlinear, right? And that's a, that was a huge thing for me because we think these big issues that we have has to be a big cause on the thing or they go after one thing. And you know, you're allowed to have more than one problem <laughs> that you need to go after. And instead of one big thing, it might be a lot of little things that, people are not putting together. And then we were talking about this morning. It's like, it's not only that you have all of them, but what order are you doing them in? So I, I like to think about a recipe, right? So if you're going to make a recipe to make a cake, you have all the different things, ingredients that you need. And then you have dosages of those ingredients. Like there's a big difference if I put a teaspoon as opposed to a cup of sugar in the cake, even though it's sugar, one's going to taste really bad. So it's the dose. But what I notice in on a recipe, because uh, it's what we're trying to do, we're using all these therapies to try to help somebody make the cake. The cake is you getting better, right? I haven't seen a recipe where they said, okay, take all of those things, put them into a giant bowl and mix them up in one shot. No, they put three together over here and they whisk them up. They put three over here and they whisk them up. And then they put bucket A and bucket B together, and then they put that together. And you would think to yourself, why are they doing that? It's all the same ingredients. No, it's not, because it's how they interacted with each other. They changed the reaction of stuff. That's that relationship. That's where it came from me. Is It wasn't so much what I was doing. That was important, but it came the order that I was doing something in and where I treated first, second, or third. So in my world, if I go back to the ankle, I never, I'm going to look at your ankle and touch it because you expect me to. But now I never treat your ankle first, ever, because I'm looking at the points above the ankle first. And if I, when I switched those orders around and I started to work, number one, nervous system, vagus, number two, limp, number three, gut, number four, blood flow, I noticed that, holy cow, I changed the recipe around. That ankle got better in half the time. And, and one of the things I want people to hear is, you left that ankle on the table knowing very well that you're going to take care of it. Yes. But if the ankle swelling goes down without you putting compression on it, and if the balance signature goes up without you training balance, and if dorsiflexion gets 10 more degrees without getting more pain, and you haven't treated the ankle yet, 
you left the pain on board as a temporary indicator of upstream influence, or what I would like to say is indirect influence as opposed to direct influence. We all know how to directly influence swelling, inflammation, mobility, and stability. And when you're changing those things indirectly, <clears throat> what it means is you're unburdening the system before you expect it to respond to that direct attack. And so you're always going to get back to the ankle. And it may be in the very same session, or you may wait a day or two. But I honestly think when I have that pain trigger, that indicator, the one thing that you are aware of, and I can demonstrate that I influenced it indirectly, the implication is so can you. Mm. If you continue these behaviors and the things that support these, that's going to need some hands-on, and it'll get it. But let's stack the dominoes up first. Well, that's one thing you've, you've kind of been talking about. I think you mentioned earlier self-care versus self-treatment. Yeah. Eventually, you've got to get to where you're doing more self-care. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking a lot about pain, and we know a huge percent of the population is either in pain or they're going to be in pain if they don't do something different. Yeah. So you're going to be giving, I would assume, you're giving a lot of your patients things that they need to do while you're there under your care. Yeah, and first thing I help them with, right? Yeah, the first thing I do is help them reframe what pain means, because by that time they think it means punishment, right? And for me, pain is a request for change. And the people say, "Change what?" Here goes my answer again. Yes. How about your habits and your behaviors? You know, what what are you doing during the day, or what are you not doing that you don't know that you're doing or supposed to be doing, right? Because you don't know what you don't Again, know. Awareness, may bring it up to the top. Yep. Yeah, you got to bring that up and check those boxes off, right? And then so the pain that you need to change something. How about change your definition of pain or? Change the way you move. There's a big one. Change the way that you move. And I even started, stopped using the word change. I started to use the word expand. Because change can be terrifying for people. And I put them into a stress response when I say change. But if I say just expand from where you are, even if it's just a little bit, that's different. It's a little bit more empowering. And it's something that we were discussing earlier about the power of words and language. Self-care versus self-treatment are completely different in relationship to what a person hears. Self is self, right? Um, but if I have treatment, that connotates something's broken, something needs to be fixed, or is dysfunctional, or there's, a, there's an end to it. Now, Care me, is different. Yeah. And, and in physical therapy, we used to call that home exercise. Hey, Perry, I'm yeah. going to see, I want you doing this at home, and I'm going to be doing this here. So I think we all are learning uh, as best we can, a little bit more self-help. And if we unpack that into self-care and self-treatment, then one of the things that happens on, on platforms like this podcast, like your podcast, like your courses, like our courses, is a lot of times when a lot of our words get over into social as opposed to educational, therapeutic, or structured environments, people take one piece of advice and they'll spin it all over the place. And Lee and I have often heard people dispensing self-treatment advice with sort of the um, casualness of self-care. Self-care should be, across the board, good lifestyle habits on nutrition, hydration, uh, activity levels, sleep, rest, regeneration. Self-treatment is not about others. It's about you in this particular situation. 
And so I literally have been non-vocal on any form of social media about any problem at all, because what happens is when I'm talking to clinicians about a contextual therapeutic intervention, a lot of people like, well, my low back hurts sometimes. Maybe I'll try that too. Mm. And that's a slippery slope. Yeah. And here's what I want people to understand. If you're doing self-treatment, then it implies that you've already done self-diagnosis. That's the slippery slope. If you are, if you are in a financial crisis right now, I'd still rather you see me for one visit and let me help you to the diagnosis because I agree with you, Kelly Starrett, and a lot of the people who don't mind showing a little more self-help than sometimes I do. As soon as you've got a professional diagnosis, many of these things you can do on your own, and I'll show you how to know if it worked or not by a test you can do. So I honestly do need a professional to help you wade through this because when you're in pain and when you have some of these other lifestyle things to unpack, it's like me giving you the most important instructions of your life when you got four beers in you or you're sleep deprived or your kids screaming in the other room. You're not going to hear what you need to hear. Mm. You're going to hear what you want to hear. And so I honestly think that I, I still cringe when people are dispensing self-treatment device and never mention a thing about, and what's the state of your tissue and what's the state of your recovery. So self-care is something that our culture doesn't teach and preach anymore. If you got a good martial arts dojo, if you're in a good CrossFit box, if you got a good yoga instructor, dance instructor, rock climbing instructor, triathlete coach, they're living a culture of better self-care because the only way you maximize performance is to manage that independently. And if you're not, we fix that. But I honestly think that anybody who skips over the self-care to get the self-treatment realize a lot of people who are inappropriate are going to consume that treatment intervention as a laser focus on their patellar tendon and not worry a thing about their balance, their mobility, their lifestyle, their inflammatory foods. And so I think if we unpack this, I want us all being more social and linked arms about self-care. If you're going to diagnose yourself, be ready to sue yourself for malpractice too. <laughs> it doesn't mean don't, don't yeah. try things, but if you're not doing self-care, self-treatment's not going to work. And I think we realize that. If they're not going to take care of their self, there's only so much I can do. Yeah. And when you have that fundamental bedrock of the self-care, a lot of those things that you're trying to go after with your self-treatment begin to change, begin to, we talked about that before, begin to improve. And you're like, wow. I mean, my back actually feels better when I started to drink more water and get my breathing in and move my diaphragm. And it didn't really take a lot. Well, that's the nonlinear coming back to visit. And then, because we know human nature too, is it? If I give you 10 things to do, you're going to do none of them, or you'll do one for a day, and then that's it. Right? So I have to be realistic in what somebody is going to do as well. And I'll be honest with you, in my world, I'm afforded a luxury in a way because by the time somebody sees me, they're at a kind of a place where they're open to anything that's new and different than what they've had. Because I tell them, so the last thing I'm going to do is what everybody else has done. Because if it's what you needed, you wouldn't be standing here talking to me because you would already be where you needed to be, right? 
So it's doing different things. But like I said before, of backing off a lot, I see that in all worlds. I have people doing um, hour of corrective exercises and all these things, and they're getting so stressed about doing the exercises the right way. So that stresses them out. And that they're not getting them in, they're not getting all of them in. The type of person who breaks themselves down is that type A, go, 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 do this all the time. They bring that same mentality to the healing process. And they're going to hit a wall because they're like, I have to do this, I have to do this, I want to do this, am I doing it the right way? And I found that in the functional medicine world too, is that people are taking 50 different supplements. And I'm like, you realize your system has to deal with all of those, right? <laughs> and they wonder why they're not getting any better after thousands and thousands of dollars. So you just got to peel the onion back a little bit and find that first domino that you said that it goes down. And that's how I go about it is through that system. And my big domino is that uh, lymphatic. I don't know if you've ever studied this, but the entire science of supplementation, whether it be a nutritional supplementation or a movement, Exercise supplementation. The entire science of supplementation literally started with scurvy and rickets. How yeah. to pre prevent vitamin D and vitamin C deficiencies when we're probably in a toxic environment or on a long ocean voyage and you don't have fresh fruits and vegetables. Either way, when we supplement vitamin D and C, that gets you back close to homeostasis. But if we don't fix the real reason why you're not getting enough, say, sun exposure or nutritional vitamin C in your life, um, supplements are never going to take you across that thing. So what has happened with both the exercise supplement industry and the nutritional supplement industry is people don't realize anymore supplements don't take you from average to exceptional. They take you from the gutter back on the sidewalk. That's it. You're not running any faster than anybody else. So I honestly think that the competitive advantage or nutritional optimization strategy with supplements has never even been scientifically proved. If you weren't at deficit, you wouldn't have felt the difference. And anytime you get all these nutritional, you're supposed to get them in a whole food package because for a few million years, that's the only way you could get them. So the best way to unpack these things. Now, when you're in a deficit, I'm glad we got supplements. And I'm glad we can slow down and heal your gut and still get you your nutritionals. But unfortunately, if you can't get off these supplemental corrective exercise or nutritional supplements, that still means your diet of activity is broken or your diet of energy, food is broken. So, uh, you know, I think that that taking supplements is probably a good proactive measure. But even Michael Pollan in some of his books says, you know, the, the people who take uh, uh, multivitamins are a little more healthier than people that don't. Mm. But it's probably not because of the multivitamins. It's because of all the, the other proactive things that yeah. these people are doing. They're probably drinking more water, sleeping a little bit better, de-stressing better, because they're already realizing my diet probably isn't complete. But supplements don't offer a competitive advantage in, in my dashboard. They simply get you out of the gutter long enough for us to see, is there another way other than this bottle or this foam roll that we can keep you Well, that's one of the biggest energized. things people go after to try to help their sleep as a supplement first. Yeah, and, we talked about that. It's like, you know, I bring up bad sleep, and 
Most people at the table will suggest melatonin or valerian root before they'll mention anything about not drinking a Red Bull with dinner. <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, and all these things. Oh, yeah, get the room cold and, and stop. They'll, they'll do all these things to optimize sleep. And uh, I'm, I'm guilty of it, man. Caffeine at 3 o'clock is not a good starting point for a good night's sleep. It's just not. Oh, I'll be fine. You may think so, but until you really start tracking that, like I had to, and I was eating my hat, man. I'm like, yeah, I can have caffeine after lunch and have a better night's sleep. And then I started going three days on, three days off. Nope, they're right. <laughs> Great cook's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> can't so, say that enough. Huh? Say that enough. <laughs> I won't say it because we got that on enough. film. Did we have that one? <laughs> yeah, we captured it. We captured well, I know it's a Katie, uh, Katie Bowman. She always talks about macronutrients and micronutrients of movement, right? That's one of the analogies she does. Yeah. Get the big and, ones and, in, and, get the smaller ones in. Right. I got time to floss and foam roll. I just don't have time to do a sun salutation or a Turkish getup. Well, how do you get it on the friggin' hard drive then? Because flossing and foam rolling are great ways to dump tension if you want to. But then if you don't use it correctly, what's the point? So you were talking about that multi-position, multi-awareness. Let's map the neuro map. Let's get a bunch of different patterns and postures. Turkish getup, three to 400 years old, sun salutation, about 4,000 years old. Both of these were never made to fix you. They were made to be a miniature meal of movement that runs your circuits, challenges gravity, motor control, mobility, and symmetry. Self-care. Yeah. You so know, one of the- some salutation was always designed to be self-care, not therapeutic. It has become certain things in yoga, certain things in, in, in exercise have become therapeutic. Yeah. But, you know. One of the biggest things that helped me the most is something. It was, um, it was a DVD you did with um, Dan John. Okay. And you, you went through uh, something where they teach you to go from a standing position down to the ground again, many different ways. That was one of the most transformational things I've ever done for myself. And I give it to all of my clients to do. That was a huge nonlinear change for me of just that simple action of going down and back up again, many, many different ways. I, because I think a lot of people, when they hear, they say that they're, they're immediately going to say, well, how do you do that? Right. It's yeah. like, whatever you want to do, yes, just is the get answer. down, yeah. go from a standing position to on the floor. I don't care how you do it. Right. That's enough for a lot of people, but people start, the wheels start turning they're automatically going to email you or question us. Well, how are you supposed to get down? How do you do the Turkish get up? No, you just said, get on the floor. And get yeah. back up. I get that a lot in my world where people say, okay, uh, uh, how many times, how many reps for how long and how much pressure? And then and I've said this over and over and over because it's my standard answer. Yes. You got to start somewhere. You know, you go, go light, you go fast, you go slow, you go, you just do variation, variability, and variety. Joanne Elphinstone, that's her three V's, right? Otherwise known as, how about you do stuff that's different? That's all it is. And as long as you have a baseline way of that you set, here's your baseline. Do whatever it is you just said do, whatever pressure, how long, whatever, and did it make a change? Right. And was it a positive change? If it wasn't, okay, maybe it wasn't a positive change. Fine. You know what not to do next. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And we've all had people just get up off the floor. Usually, prior to asking them to do that, I've got an SFMA or an FMS. Mm-hmm. I don't tell them how they scored. 
on my assessment or even on the screen. I simply, guy's a leg raise, guy's a single leg stance problem. All right, now then I give them something like walk on a balance beam or get up off the floor, depending on which system I want to challenge, right? Posture pattern transition or equilibrium balancing gait. I'll just test one. I know they're going to have a problem, right? They, they had all kinds of asymmetries on the move screen. When they get to the sticking point, they roll and get up half kneeling on left, piece of cake. They roll and get up half kneeling on right, took twice as long, took, looked way awkward, had a few pauses. Why, wonder why it was worth, worse on that side. Oh, when I did your movement screen, I saw the exact same thing. You don't hip hinge well on that side, and you don't like to rotate to the right. How'd you know that? Well, those seven different positions we did, that told me that, but I'm in total agreement with you. I was sort of expecting that on the right side. Now you're aware of it too. That means whatever you just felt right there, whatever you want to call it, I've already named it, that needs to get better, and this is the recipe for that. There's never any more questions. I don't have to convince anybody of anything, mm -hmm. but I didn't try to sell them the movement analysis. And just, just like Lee said, asking somebody to get up off the floor, regardless of what age, even if they are partially disabled, that's going to be a life-saving maneuver at some point. That's within my wheelhouse as a physical therapist. I'm doing that kind of stuff with total knee patients because if they do go down, if they can get up from the ground, number one, if they go down, they're going to go down softer and with way more options for landing and may still have the ability to get back up. But if they're scared to get down there, that's the first thing we need to confront because if this is the best environment to confront that, I got a mat table, I got a big soft cushy floor and I'm right beside you. But let's unpack this. So I let them have a familiar, recognizable movement task of humanity and I let them hit a speed bump. And when they ask me why, I'm like, I'm in total agreement with you. You're supposed to struggle at this side because that's exactly what your test just said you were going to do. And they're like, oh, I'm glad somebody finally connected those two things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I hear a lot of people hear us say, get up off the floor, and they'll turn around and use that as an assessment. I didn't. I already ran your movement patterns in a much more clean, reliable, objective feedback way. So I will change these and let you tell me how that felt smoother. So, so we each got to have a language, and I don't expect them to use my word. What, what stopped you there? I just, I don't know. A, a hip just wouldn't move. Okay. Well, when it does, we'll know things are getting better, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot here that we went through during this uh, hour or so. Um, but I think to me, listening to you guys go back and forth is one thing that we need to make sure we all appreciate and and really get this over to the patients and clients that most people listening are, are dealing with is that everything is connected, and you can't just go after one area. You've got to look, you know. You know, we said the word upstream a lot to figure out what's the, where's the biggest opportunity and what's going to give us the most impact for the individual. And almost just letting people, giving people almost permission to look beyond what they're having problems with. You know, look at your sleep, look at your, some of your daily habits and start to figure out where am I not doing, what am I doing that's not that great? But let's be honest, everybody around the world knows what they should be doing to live a healthier life. They should be exercising. They should be drinking plenty of water, eating right, and not smoking. Yep. For the most part, if you do those things, and exercise doesn't have to be going into a gym. It's to be active. So most people know. So if they just start looking beyond just 
one of those things and look at all of them, I think that's a good start. No, and I think we yeah. got an advantage today of people who are consuming wearable or at least have one of those mattresses that says if you slept good. Back before people were in wearables, you know the question I used to ask in the old days? All right, now you just told me about yourself. What would your spouse say about you? Oh, I sleep horrible and, right? So whether you got a wearable or a spouse, answer the question that your wearable would answer or say what your spouse would say. And it, it really is. It's one of those things because when it, when it comes to the way I sleep and eat, Danielle and my wearable totally agree. <laughs> they do. I, I'm not handling it. good when that works out like that. I too much and I slept way too little. <laughs> well, I have a saying that I use all the time about the systems of the body. It's that no system in the body ever works alone. So you can't chase a single system, and that's what I have a problem I have with specialists. They forget about all the other ones. Yeah, it never gets injured alone. It's never a one system thing. It never heals alone, right? I don't believe there's any such thing as an isolated injury in the body because the whole body comes on board to try to help it, and there's no such thing as isolated healing. The whole thing contributes and tries to influence as best it can, which is exactly what we've been saying. Go after those basics and fundamentals, right? Your, your ABCs and your one, two, threes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you start there, know your alphabet, then you read Sesame Street, then you can go read Shakespeare. Most people are jumping into Shakespeare and they're like, ah, I read it, but I have no idea what I just read. Because <laughs> it just doesn't go into the system. Well, here's, here's a question I want our listeners to, to think of unpacking this week. And Lee and I were doing a little Lecture. We hadn't traveled together in a long time. He even made us share a hotel room, which we didn't have to do. So the <laughs> company's either getting ready to oh, crash yeah. or it was late notice. Gotta we save, save a few bucks here and there. No, I, can we went, I can tolerate him for a night. We had a whole group. <laughs> and, and I got to ask a whole room full of strength coaches, PTs, and athletic trainers. We're all in some fashion of movement coaching, training, or therapy, therapeutic intervention. The simple question we have to ask ourselves is, is movement broken or is something breaking movement? And, and if something's breaking your movement, if something's hurting your reaction time, your timing, your coordination, your mobility, your stability, adding unnecessary tone and unnecessary burdens, static positioning, and you know all these things, then we're going to still test bad movement, Right. But if we're still in that paradigm where every time we see a mobility problem, we prescribe a stretch. And every time we see a stability or motor control problem, we prescribe a muscle action. Then we're going to be putting a Band-Aid on something that's upstream poisoning movement. So the first question I ask is, when, even when you see a traumatic injury, we know what broke your movement. Is there anything upstream that's going to make it worse? But we see a lot of people with no trauma, back or neck goes out. And we've got to keep asking ourselves, is something breaking this movement or not allowing this movement to, to normalize? Or is this movement the bottleneck? You know, once you've got a frozen shoulder, I don't care what caused it, we got to deal with that. <laughs> we got to get that shoulder moving. But most of the time, people with a musculoskeletal or strength conditioning background find a movement problem go right at it and assign it. And the reason I know that is I'm very well trained in most of these disciplines. And that's what I was trained to do. When I find a tight hamstring, you're getting a hamstring stretch. You're not getting, hey, roll around on the ground, restabilize yourself, breathe, 
do some crocodile breaths and half kneel and let's level up your pelvic floor. Oh, hamstring's not high tone anymore. That hamstring was being a secondary stabilizer and I was getting ready to stretch it out and that wasn't going to make a difference because it's being asked to be tight or toned every time. So are you working on broken (laughs) movement or are you working on something that's breaking the movement? Never 100%, but go where the majority is. And if you can't find a lot of upstream toxicity, go fix movement and see if it holds. And if you're seeing broken movement with a lot of bad behavior, you actually have a chance to adjust self-care to help your treatment. Or anybody trying self-treatment, work with a diagnosis and don't misapply the self-care. It's everything. It's the soil. Treatment's the seed. (laughs) If the soil ain't ready, the seed ain't going to work. Well, Dr. Perry, I appreciate you coming in and spending some, uh, spending not only the podcast, but couple of days with us, man. It was great to reconnect and uh, looking forward to the future and uh, really appreciate the time you gave us today. Oh, yeah. Thank you, my friends. It was so great. Yeah, I'm going to be back, like I said, next weekend. Oh, you, you've <laughs> achieved right. your I'm honorary knock on your door. status. Oh, my God. He got our address. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome anytime, my man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of The Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening, and if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.